Hello there, everybody, and welcome to the first ever Just Pews podcast, the official podcast for JustPews.com. I'm your host, Mike, but you may know me as TatCat. If you're wanting to follow Just Pews on social media, you can find all the links on the website, as well as a link to our Patreon if you decide you want to support our content for as little as a dollar a month. Today's topic of choice is none other than asking the infamous question, are 1911s and 2011s viable for self-defense? with an emphasis on the average gun owner. To tackle this challenging topic, we have none other than Eric Nelson, the founder of Nelson Gunsmithing. And if you're wanting to follow Eric on social media, he is one of the content contributors for Just Pews. You can navigate over to the website, click the About, and in the drop-down menu, you'll find Nelson Gunsmithing, and there you'll find all of his social media links. Eric, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, as said, I'm the owner of Nelson Gunsmithing. We're a small two-man shop. It's me and my uh, partner, Casey Redinger. We mostly specialize in working on working with hand tools to work on handguns, AR-15s, and cowboy firearms. We're a general-purpose gun shop, so we might see everything from a Savage 99 needing a new firing pin to a Glock that's just not quite working right for the owner. Um, I'm happy to be here today, and I hope I can help educate folks a little bit on some of the details and the information about the 1911 platform. All right, before we get into it, I do think it's important to note that I'm, I'm pretty sure we're both big fans of the 1911. Um, I've previously owned a Ruger SR 1911. I didn't have it for too long because the uh, steel frame CZP-01 came out and it was supposed to be a limited thing. Um, absolutely love shooting that, and I've shot my family member's Colt Railgun on a semi, semi-regular basis. Now, from what I've gathered from you and talking to you, you really love the 1911 platform. I do. Um, I've been lucky enough to do a little uh, sport shooting with it. Um, I used to run an STI Trojan and 40 cal when I was doing USPSA, and I've been lucky enough to be able to attend the Hawk Tech annual 1911 shooting match out here in Boise, Idaho, uh, which is all 1911s, and it's a lot of fun. That sounds like a lot of fun. Now, 40 cal puts you into major power factor. I'm not a huge competition guy, so I'm not too familiar with that. Yeah, exactly. Um, 40 cal, 40 cal, or nine millimeter major. You can push those up into the major power category, which gives you a bit of a scoring advantage, but it doesn't um, hinder you by having to use like a really hot round either. It's about the the perfect balance between efficiency and power. Actually, sounds kind of interesting. Now, what's nine millimeter major compared to nine millimeter parabellum? Well, you can. It's not recommended, but you can take a nine by nineteen round. And you load it up with enough powder that you can uh, hit a sufficient velocity to make major power factor. Uh, a little more commonly, you'll see people use rounds like 9x21 or 38 Super. Um, I think 38 Dillon is one that people really like as well. And those are all rounds that people will use to get into that major power factor while still keeping with a 355 caliber bullet. All right, that's actually kind of interesting. I, I've heard of the Dillon round, and I had a guy actually nearby to me that love to run that for self-defense at least that's what he claims i never saw him having any reloading gear so that makes me question his authenticity yeah it's true if you're gonna do that you're making your own ammo right so okay so to get started in on the topic are the regular 1911s as real reliable as people want to believe or is there a difference and are there differences between the 1911 and 2011s minus the 2011 being a double stack. The, so the original 1911 <clears throat> was built around the 45 ACP round. So any attempts to mo- I mean attempts to modify that platform have run into problems because you're a lot of people were trying to take a 45 caliber frame and find ways to make a not make it feed and run nine millimeter or 40 caliber rounds. The STI 2011, which is they're really the company that kind of busted out the 2011 concept. They started building their guns from the ground up around being a nine millimeter or a 40 caliber uh, projectile. So you're going to see a little more attention to detail in some of the mechanical construction, things that you might not spot as an average gun owner, but which make a big difference towards making it run more reliably. Now, what are some of those like like? I think I remember you telling me that there's like a difference in the feed ramps between the 2011 and the 1911. Like the night the 1911 has a uh, feed ramp that's integral to the frame, doesn't it? 
Oh, no, it's the other way around. The other uh, way around? 19, a classic 1911, you have a two-piece feed ramp. Okay. Uh, the, bullet, the bullet knows it's off the frame and up a very short ramp into the chamber. The 2011s were built around having a ramped frame, which is a very popular modification a lot of gunsmiths made to old 1911s back in the 80s and 90s. All right, so speaking of the feed ramp, with hollow points, 1911s tend to see a significant reliability impact when it comes to them. Yeah, with, that's, in, that's a, that's a long-standing issue with a lot of older 1911s. Right, and now with that... Like, let's say an, I run an HST 230 grain through a 1911 one day, and it runs it fine. Is it possible that the next time I go out to the range that that specific 1911 might encounter feeding issues with the HST? Uh, no. Generally speaking, if because, you know, we're talking about a lot of stacking tolerances. You know, the distance from your your, your chamber, your, your rear of your chamber to the, the barrel, to the slide itself, we're talking about the distance from the top of the barrel hood down to the ramp. A lot of stacking tolerances where everything can be off by a little bit can add up. But if your gun is running these reliably and you've not had an issue with it, then you can generally assume it'll continue to run reliably. Right, but would you say, would you say that FMJ would help prevent having any reliability issues at all? Yeah, very with, especially in like 45. Yeah. Um, if you're if you're having reliability issues with your 1911, I do recommend going back to an FMJ and seeing if that fixes the problem. And if it does, would that be should that person carry like if that's their only firearm like or well their only handgun? If FMJ is the only thing that's running reliably in that 1911, is that what they should be carrying in it? In your opinion, and are there any potential repercussions from doing that? Well, so now we're getting a little into terminal ballistics, um, and there's some really great work done by guys like Chuck Haggard and Dr. House, who have spent a lot of time looking into how bullets perform in meat. There is a reason that law enforcement went over to using hollow points. For one, the increased wounding potential is pretty important, because if you get a high-performing 45 caliber HST round, that can expand almost a tenth of an inch in diameter, or uh, almost, almost, almost a full inch in diameter, pardon me, because it'll go from a 45 caliber round when the pedals peeled back, I've seen them open up to 0.8 or even 0.9 inches. And that's a that's a pretty big hole to put in somebody. The other thing, too, is to remember that one of our concerns as safe gun owners is over-penetration. And if you're using FMJ rounds, you're going to see penetration that will go clear through a target and still retain wounding velocity as it encounters uh, obstacles behind whoever you're shooting at. Now, have you seen any... Because I haven't seen any lately. Have you seen any articles where uh, a full metal jacket has actually done a pass through in the in, in the torso of a of a assailant? I've seen a couple. Um, you know, again, it's rare. Most people have the sense to hit the deck when bullets start flying. Um, it doesn't happen a lot, but you know, as safe gun owners, we're always trying to hedge our bets because all it has to happen is once. And that's a very expensive mistake to make. So if we're covering our asses, as we think we should, hollow points are generally a better idea because they are more likely to be contained in the target and less likely to do collateral damage. Right, and that makes sense. And you definitely, because like you've said, or like we've all said at one point or another, the, the things that end a fight are either bleed out or CNS shot or the psychological stopper, which is not as reliable as the other two. And with the bigger hole, you're going to get faster bleed out than you would with something like an FMJ. Yeah, exactly. All right, so I know one thing that gets brought up a lot about 1911s and their reliability, um, as well as their maintenance, is the fact that there are so many other metal-framed handguns out there um, that are very easy to maintain. And this is, I think this is a really good thing to move on to from talking about the reliability aspect with hollow points. Um, so what what's the major difference between something like a 1911 and a 2011 and, like, say, a Beretta 92, an SPL-1, or a SIG-226? So guns like the Beretta 92 and the SIG, they were built in an era of modern CNC machinery. Uh, parts tolerances can be held very... To Parts can be held to very tight tolerances. Uh, they can be built very easily. And it's a theory of modern gun design 
where if you need to replace a part, you can reach into a bin and find one that'll work in there. Uh, I think that the the standard is what they call the 99% part swap, which means 99% of all parts for these modern duty handguns will fit in any one of those guns. Uh, the, the intent there is to spend less time having gunsmiths and experts assembling and fitting these parts one by one. 1911s were not built that way. They were not designed that way. They were designed during a time when hands-on skills and gunsmiths were cheaper than machine work. And so that's one of the legacy problems we have with 1911s to this day is that the design of them assumes a lot of very careful hand fitting is done at a couple of very specific spots. This is something we've run into, something we talked about the other day, you and me, Mike, was that there's a there's kind of a threshold between how cheap you can make a 1911, but how expensive it needs to be to run well. And that threshold actually does have a number attached to it. It seems to be about $1,300. Below that, you start running the risk of compromising performance. Now, would you say this goes into the 2011s as well? Like, there's still the aspect where you're having to have people hand-fitting parts to them like you do with the 1911 or have companies like STI kind of overcome those issues? They've gotten a lot better at it. You know, when you understand where your stacking tolerances are and you get all the parts from one company, they've got better quality control. So they can say, so we know our slides are all in this certain range of the, the slide bar, the slide locking lugs, for instance. They know exactly what the variances are there. When they build their barrels, they build those barrels with those variances in mind. And when they build the frames, they build the frames in mind for how the barrel linkage pin can swing. So they're controlling their quality assurance and their production very closely. you got to remember, though, that the 2011 and the 1911 are basically identical guns. The only difference between them is that the 2011 tends to have shorter rails and it has a larger magazine, uh, larger diameter grip for a double stack magazine. Functionally, they're the same firearm. All right. So, uh, you know, talking a lot about stacking tolerances, we know that like the Beretta 92 has the locking block that is attached to the barrel. Uh, the CZSPL1 has a, uh, what's it called in the muzzle? The A bushing. Yes, a barrel bushing and the muzzle of the SPL1. Why is it that both of these guns are able to have these, these different parts to have uh, stacking tolerances? that don't cause issues like we see with the 1911. It's because these guns were built around the idea of not having of not having to engage all of these surfaces at the same time. The the Beretta has its the way the Beretta that the locking lugs interact with the frame and the slide is different than the way that the 1911 does. The CZ bushing is again that's one of those things that doesn't come into play until the gun is almost entirely locked up. The problem with the 1911 is that it was built with the intention of being able to mate up multiple locking surfaces simultaneously. Your bushing has to be a very tight precision fit. Your barrel hood has to be perfectly square to the rear of the slide. Your locking lugs have to match up with a high degree of uh, intersection for maximum engagement, and you have to measure or engage the distance for your barrel linkage pin. These are all factors that you can fit by hand as you go, and there are tools for doing it, and you can feel them fitting. But trying to do that in the machine shop becomes more difficult to do well. And there's a certain point where, like I said, that $1,300 mark, where beyond that, the value is in having somebody precisely fit those parts. Below that, you're paying for those parts possibly not fitting as ideally as they need to. Now, with these parts, like, would you say, like, the Beretta, the CZ, the SIG, they're all made to be able to withstand a more uh, more variety in terms of uh, measurements and, and parts, like slight variations than 1911s and 2011s are? It, yeah, it, it is, it's all stacking tolerances, like I said. And the design right. of these guns is meant to make, to make these stacking tolerances as unimportant as possible. Um, there's, I, I said, I really, I really am not sure how else to put it. With the 1911, it was built assuming that a skilled gunsmith is fitting those parts to one another. These other guns are built assuming that a good machinist is building these parts within certain tolerances. And as long as they stay within those tolerances, replacing and fitting those parts is very easy. Now, that would you say that it's near impossible for the average gun owner to be able to maintain their own 1911 and 2011? Yeah, I would. Um, 
you can get great replacement parts for CZs from Cajun Gunworks. They're kind of the standard in the industry. Yep. You can buy Glock parts from anybody. Glock parts are not hard to get replacements for. Berettas either. The problem with 1911s is that every part to be done correctly needs to be hand fit. There's there's very little on the 1911 that I think you can do without the right kind of tools and training. Fitting a barrel is several hours of work. Fitting a new slide to a frame can take several hours of work. Certainly don't recommend people mess with their uh, fire control group like their trigger sear or hammer because it's very easy to screw that up and then you have a gun that's not only non-functioning, it can be very dangerous. Right. Now, and, and you said that that price point's like right around the $1,300 mark in order to get one that's fairly reliable, at least reliable enough for defensive purposes. Um, what happens when we start going down in terms of the price point? Like, let's say Rock Island Armory, for instance. With those tolerances being looser, would you be able to use a drop-in barrel and not notice as big of a difference or as big of a shift in terms of accuracy, point of impact, point of aim, um, comparatively to something like a Dan Wesson Vigil? Uh, that is the upside to a, a cheaper 1911. Uh, the tolerances tend to be sloppier because there's less precision and it wants to fit a wider range of parts. But again, you're, you're kind of gambling here because if you buy a, a, like a nice barrel and you try and drop it in, there's no guarantee that it's going to fit. And if the barrel doesn't fit, the gun won't work. With Glocks, you can take almost any Glock, drop it, any barrel, drop it in any Glock, and it'll run. Now, it's not going to run with the same potential precision as a 1911. A hand-built, hand-assembled 1911 can deliver accuracy of less than an inch at 25 yards. A lot of Glocks will struggle to do that. But the upside is, is that you don't have to pay a gunsmith three or four hundred dollars to install and fit a match grade barrel. Right. Now, what can what can cause the reliability issues with the cheaper 1911s? Is it just the stacking tolerances or is it the fact that things aren't mated together properly? Which I guess would be the, the same time, thing. I, find <laughs> I find it's just the magazines are the problem. People buy cheap guns and they get cheap magazines to go with it. You can fix a lot of common problems with the 1911 platform just by buying a good Metgar or a uh, or Wilson Combat. Wilson Combat mags are really the best, and they they're what I recommend to people. And that'll fix a lot of common feeding problems. But with the 1911, you still do have some other potential issues where you have variances in you know like how how wide the uh, the barrel hood, the, the, the cutout for the barrel hood is on the slide. You have variances in how tight the bushing is. Now, the tighter these parts are, the better they perform. The looser they are, the less the less performance you're going to get out of it. And you can reach a point where your tolerances and your parts fitting are so sloppy that parts start unlocking and moving in the wrong order. And if the order of operation is interfered with, that can interfere with the reliability of the gun. And you've told me before that there are a lot of timing things that go into a 1911 that actually have to be timed. Like even with these sloppier made ones, where if it's not timed properly, it's going to end up having a whole bunch of issues just from the get-go, right? Very much so, yeah. All right, so would you say that like something like a Rock Island Armory would be viable for someone to pick up for self-defense? Because I think that's what a lot of... And I don't want to I, I don't want to sound bad, but a, your typical gun owner isn't going to want to spend thirteen hundred dollars on a nineteen eleven when they see something like the Rock Island for five hundred. So w would it be reliable enough for for your typical gun owner to purchase and use for self defense? I wouldn't trust it. I wouldn't trust it until I put a lot of rounds through it. Now there and you know there there's are there are lemons in every lot. Even Nighthawk makes a mistake once in a while. It's pretty rare, but they do. And there are some guns that come out of the Colt, the old Colt factories. They come out of the Philippines that run surprisingly well. It happens. But as a rule of thumb, asking me as a gunsmith, you know, could I buy this gun off the shelf? I would say no. I would say unless you're prepared to commit to a high-quality firearm with good magazines and spending a lot of time and effort finding ammo that works for it, you're going to be better served with a modern combat firearm like the Beretta 92, like the CZ-75. And then wait until down the road when you can understand the advantages versus the cost of a high-quality 1911. All right, so now 
I mean, we have to appease the two world wars crowd real quick. In today's market, we have a ton of cheap 1911s, we have a ton of mid-tier 1911s, and we have a, a ton of high-quality 1911s, quite frankly. From each one of these categories, which one would you place the 1911s from World War II in? Would you put them in the lower tier where it's a really sloppy made, the mid tier where it's kind of, you know, it's good enough, it's going to run, you aren't going to really run into any issues, or would you place it into the high tier? You're going to have to have literally everything hand fit to this thing if anything goes wrong with it. I would I would say it's in the low tier, and I know that's going to upset a lot of people. You know, but this design is over a century old at this point. And when we got into World War II, it was actually still fairly uncommon for soldiers to be issued what we call what we consider combat handguns. Now, if you had a handgun, you were either like a frontline unit who needed every possible tool or you were someone who's so rear echelon, you had no real need to be carrying a full sized rifle. The 1911 was a very novel advancement. It has some features that we are using to this day in other guns, like the tilting barrel design. And the 45 caliber round, there's nothing wrong with that. We discovered that when we were fighting in the Philippines prior uh, in the in the interim time, because the old 38 Colt did not have enough penetration or force to deal with Moro warriors hopped up on their local hallucinogens. The 45 is a great round, and the 1911 was one of the few guns that fired a 45 reliably. That's one of the reasons it's so popular. But wartime production does not guarantee quality. And I think a lot of guys, there's a certain mystique around the 1911 that doesn't really hold up to, 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 to modern scrutiny and what we expect for reliability in a firearm. When we have new guns like the Breda 92 with a firing schedule of 10 to 20,000 rounds with no failures, that's, that's an expected standard for a 92, for a Glock, for uh, a SIG. It's 10 to 20,000 rounds. Good luck finding a 1911 that'll run that reliably. Yeah, I think it'd be worth mentioning, too. You know, you got a whole bunch of these, uh, like, Desert Storm veterans and stuff that absolutely love the 1911. They go on and on about how it won two world wars. But then they complete... It's like there's some cognitive dissonance going on. They, They start complaining about the reliability of the Beretta 92. It's like, you know, the Beretta 92 passed a, a far more... Uh, what would be a good word for it? The test that the 92 had to pass was more rigorous, yeah, compared to what the 1911 had to pass. And they were still having issues with it in, you know, in the Middle East. But for some reason, they believe that the 1911, despite being 100 years old, is better. So that that has of of always wanting the. Uh... The, the, the late, always wanting the old gun. People in the military don't want the latest and greatest. They want to go with things that have a, a, the mystique of having been handled by, you know, by somebody who knew what they were doing. So when they switched the M16s, everybody said the M14 was a better rifle. When they switched from the 1911 to the Beretta 92, everybody said the 1911 was a better gun. Now, the Beretta 92 had some issues in the first 10 to 20,000 that were built. There was, an, there was a heat treating issue with the locking lugs. Later on during the world of terror, or during the war on terror, pardon me, we found out that part of the problem was the magazines uh, because they were attracting too much grit and dust, possibly because a lot of soldiers were over-oiling them. But the M16 is more reliable than the M14. The M92 Beretta is more reliable than the 1911. But people don't want to hear that. They like the idea of a heavy, slow, hard-hitting round rather than a lightweight 9mm or 223 projectile. And it's from a military perspective. I got in. I came in in 2005. You know, right, right when the war on terror was kicking off, and I knew kids who would never even handle an M14, who would happily tell anybody who listened that the M14 was the better gun. Which I don't doubt at all, because we still see that today with with. People going into the military right now and coming out, they're still saying, you know, the 1911 is better than the Beretta 92 or the M9 that they were issued. And it's honestly, when you think about it, it's like, okay, the M9 that you were issued had been handled by thousands of people. It was improperly maintained, probably. 
and your 1911 that you just picked up from well, Bud's Gun Shop for $300, you've shot maybe 10 rounds through it. <laughs> yeah. And this Beretta that you're saying is shit probably has 30, 40,000 rounds through it, and it's it's probably still running the stock locking block on it. And I believe per Beretta, those are supposed to be changed out at 10,000 rounds. I've seen them still running the original recoil springs. That's insane. So, yeah, I mean, so people are complaining about the Berettas, but really a lot of the hype there has to do with institutional beliefs that don't really have a good basis in fact. And like you said, there's a big difference between going out and buying your gun, babying your gun, treating it very carefully and nicely, versus pulling the one off the rack that has been there since the early 90s as a trainer for everybody and their mother. Right, and I do want to say, I, I, I do want to go ahead and say this before I forget to, to be fair to 45 ACP, I have had a handful of people out shooting for the very first time with me, and before I had an SPO one and I had a 1911 that I could let them shoot side by side. All of them absolutely preferred the recoil impulse of the 1911 to the SPL-1, and the reason that they said that they preferred it was because the 9mm was still a little bit too snappy for them. It was a little bit too, I guess, too quick of a recoil impulse compared to the 45. So I think 45 ACP is, it's still, it's not a bad cartridge by any means, and I do think it's possibly the best introductory caliber into duty calibers for handgun purposes. I don't know if I go that far. Uh, subjective experiences for new gun owners can be very misinforming. This is true. You know, so, and, and most of these guys, if you buzz out a shot timer around them, they're going to balk. And without a shot timer giving you really objective data, saying how it feels is not something most people can do accurately. For what it's worth, I don't know a lot of high-end operators, SWAT officers, or military personnel who prefer 45 um, at the shooting range or in competition. There are not a lot of people making the argument that 45 is a superior round to 9mm these days. So how something feels is a lot different than how it performs. And there can be an advantage to running around that feels a little snappier because that recoil impulse is a little faster, is a little hotter but it's also shorter. And if you've got good technique, good grip, you can overcome that and really stay on target and hammer down hard. Right. And I mean, this does, what you're saying is supported by the FBI. Um, for anyone that wants to know, you can go, you can look up SOFREP, S-O-F-R-E-P, and then look up the reasons why the FBI went back to nine millimeter. And what Eric is saying is absolutely supported. They, the, the FBI found that, you know, from 40 to 45, all the officers knew and and weathered all had easier time shooting the 9mm. So, you know, despite what I'm saying, which I do because of my experience with the new shooters, there is more evidence saying that 9mm is probably the better choice. But that's still not going to say that 45 is a terrible round. No, and, and don't get me wrong here. This is, you know, we're, we're not, this is not the end of the world. Greg Elifritz has done some really authoritative work analyzing ballistics and terminal ballistics for various handgun rounds. And he has shown that there's not a huge statistical difference between the way that uh, 389, 40, and 45 and 10 millimeter perform. But gunfights are not about, are not won on the basis of being pretty good. As gun owners, we are always chasing those extra percentages. We want to dominate the gunfight. You don't just want to win. You want to win so completely that the enemy doesn't get a chance to get a shot off. If they do, they're going to miss. That's the ideal way to win a gunfight. And with all those factors considered, the numbers that come out ahead, the best percentages, the best odds, are almost always associated with a 9mm. And this really does start to hurt the 1911 specifically because it's only a single stack, and with 9mm you're only able to get 9 rounds. Comparatively to a smaller platform, the Glock 19, you're able to get 15 rounds of 9mm in a flush fit magazine, and you're able to stay in the fight for a little bit longer, presuming you don't encounter any issues. That's correct. And now, you know, a lot of gunfights are won 
in a fairly short volley of, of, of gunfire. You know, they'll say that's why there are some people who are very comfortable carrying a six to eight round revolver. But again, we don't always train for the for the best case scenario. You should be training and prepared for a worst case scenario. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be a high noon shootout with four or five guys in the middle of downtown. But if you can carry extra ammunition in your in your primary gun, there's really no reason not to. And you can be hindered by having a gun that doesn't have the same capacity but takes out the same amount of weight and space. Right, and that's something I've always I've been a very strong advocate of. You cannot be preparing for the best of the worst case scenarios. If you're wanting to prepare for a bad situation, you want to prepare for the worst of the worst, not the best of the worst. That's a very good way to put it. Now, let's go ahead and try answering this question because I think we both already kind of know what the answer is. With 1911s, they're not really user maintenanceable. And I think that is a very big point about whether or not it's a good, well, not good, but a viable defensive solution for the average gun owner. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, you can you can go onto YouTube and find out how to swap out common Glock parts very easily. And, I mean, you can take a Glock Armors course in less than a day, and a lot of people do. And I encourage people to do it if they're interested in learning about gunsmithing. It's a good way to kind of ease into the learning curve. A 1911, the, the build course I took from Bruce Pyatt, we averaged, uh, it was supposed to be eight-hour days. We averaged 12, 12 12-hour days for five days straight. And honestly, we felt like we could have done even more. We could have studied more. We could have discussed more stuff. And now, granted, a little bit of that, you know, some of the time is us spent hands-on actually building our guns and fitting the parts. But as I've kind of grown up as a gunsmith, I've realized that even that 40, 50-hour block of instruction could have been a lot longer. <clears throat> and I, for your average gun owner, fitting and replacing parts for a 1911 is going to be out of their wheelhouse, both in terms of the actual skills needed, as well as the cost of the tools to do it correctly. And if you're going to mess with the fire control group on a 1911, you better do it correctly because it's easy to screw that up. Now, just so that way everyone has an idea of what, how much it's going to cost, how much would you say you spent specifically on tools for fixing, repairing, and building 1911s? So one of, one of the tools I use a lot is a trigger fitting jig, and that's for fitting the hammer or for, for uh, cutting and stoning the hammer and the sear hooks. And that jig alone is about 200, 250 bucks for the jig and the, and the mounts. I have another one that I use specifically for clamping the 1911 up and putting it under the mill so I can uh, fit and recut the slide, uh, the, uh, the, frame lug, the frame rails for the slide. That was about a $300 tool. I have a variety of uh, small, like the lug, the barrel under lug cutters, 80 bucks. So I, I think I've got at least $1,000 worth of tools specifically for working on 1911s. And I honestly do not have, compared to like Joe Chambers, compared to some of the, the really excellent 1911 specialists out there, I don't have all that many specialized tools. So right there, just right there alone, you're looking at a grand on top of the cost of the $1,300 threshold for a reliable 1911 to be able to maintain it yourself. And that's not even considering the fact that if you want to become, or no, that's not a good way to put it. If you're wanting to pick up a 1911, you aren't just picking it up to learn how to use it. You're picking it up and becoming a student of the platform itself. And you actually have to invest all that time. Like you said, you know, that 50 hour course could have been expanded into a lot more things. So there's the huge gigantic time sink into becoming the student of the platform. There's the sink of having to learn how to shoot it properly and getting accustomed to flicking off the safety, which is really no big feat. Um, But then you also have to spend double the money on the basically, essentially, in order to get everything that you'd need in order to self-maintain it if something went down so you weren't without the firearm itself for defensive purposes. Well, let me put it this way. Don't work on your own 1911s. If you want to pick one up to learn how to work on it, if you've got aspirations of being a gunsmith, pick up like a Rock Island one and then learn what's wrong with it. 
build it up using new parts and seeing how the how these new parts fit into a lower a lower quality gun that would be a good learning experience but i got to tell you the cost of the tooling needed to work on a glock is about 10 bucks for a glock tool all you really need is like you don't even need the glock tool all you really need is a ballpoint pen from what some people have told me i i would not be lying i'd be lying if i said i hadn't used a pen once in a while (laughs) i was in a hurry to pull a glock apart the only specialized tool you need for a glock is a little hex screw thing to take off the front sight that's it that's the only really specialized tool glock needs and anybody can learn how to how to fit how to drop in new parts into a glock it's not hard to do but with a 1911 if you don't have the time the training the technique you need to commit to having a gunsmith who knows what they're doing work on your gun for you, and it's not going to be cheap. All right, so I think to answer the question of are they viable for the average gun owner, I'm going to throw in my rag and I'm going to say no. And it's it's too costly for the average gun owner to actually participate in, I guess is the best way to say it. I've been gunsmithing professionally now for just over three years, you know, and I had, and I'm, I'm, I'm in an apprenticeship also. You're never done learning. I'm, I'm a decent shot, but I can tell you that the people who, who build 1911s for pros who use them competitively, they're the kind of people for whom like an extra half an inch at 25 yards, that's a big deal for them. That's something that they can quantify and deal with. Most people are going to have a wobble factor, a user error factor, that is significantly in excess of the accuracy of the gun itself. So for a lot of gun owners, I'm going to recommend a well-proven duty gun like the Glock, like the Sig, like the Beretta. Because five, six hundred bucks for the gun, a couple hundred bucks for ammo, and a couple hundred bucks for a training class, that's going to do you well. And that's going to set you up right with some great fundamental skills. But for the 1911, you, you can't you can't buy progress. Remember, you can't just buy gear in in lieu of training and practice. Instagram operators enter the chat. Exactly, exactly. You can't you can't buy success. So going out and buying a $1,300 gun over a $500 gun is not going to get you the same amount of return on investment that a $500 gun with $500 worth of training will get you. Right, and just. So that way you can you can image how expensive it would be to get into the 1911 platform to be able to self-maintain it. Because in my opinion, I believe it's in your opinion too, Eric, in order for it to be a good defensive platform, you have to be able to use or maintain it. So, I, Well, so, you know, 1911, even cleaning it takes a little extra work. You know, a Glock, yeah. you can get in there, you, you spray a little simple green, wipe it with a cloth, you're done. The SIG P320 has will get uh, tens of thousands of rounds between cleaning cycles. Um, when we were at, I was at the SIG Academy a couple of years ago, and we were asking them about reliability of their handguns. And one guy said, he said he is up to 5,000 or some rounds between cleaning, and his P320 was still running. I don't know a single 1911 that would put up to 5,000 rounds of 45 and still be running reliably. Oh, yeah, 45 is a very very dirty round to be shooting but to put this to put this bit like into perspective for everyone it's going to cost about $2300 to get everything you need in order to use a 1911 defensively including maintaining it um, and that's not accounting for the parts with the Glock let's assume that it costs $500 that leaves you with $1500 left over pre covid prices that money would have purchased you 9,000 rounds of 9mm. That is a significant amount of training that you can get done with that amount of ammunition. It's a significant amount of classes that you can take without having to run to the store to get more ammunition. That's a very good way of looking at it, yeah. So for the boomers that still want to use 45 ACP, you know, what gun do you think would be a good solution for them to run? In terms of what? Reliability, being able to maintain it for themselves, et cetera, et cetera. Basically solves the issues that the 1911, potentially the 2011, pose for the average gun owner. You know, that's uh, that, that comes in one of those 
those questions where we have to look at what your finances are. If you've right. got the money, if you if if you're not going to blink at going out and dropping fifteen hundred dollars, two thousand dollars on a high end nineteen eleven, getting a Dan Wesson, getting a Nighthawk, getting uh, like a custom like one of the old custom shot Kimbers, getting one of the uh, one of the one of the newer STIs like the Staccato or something. If you've got the money to do that and do training and buy ammo, more power to you. That's fine. If you are kind of embarking on your new life as a student of pistol shooting and the the military does not teach us well how to shoot handguns believe me um if you're embarking on this new path if you've never been somebody who's big on everyday carry if you're looking for a gun to learn on and to grow on something like a glock the beretta 92 the sig those are going to be well-proven and reliable options that are going to free up a lot more money for you to train and improve with. So 600, 800 bucks for a, a gun that you know is going to be reliable versus trying to either, or versus trying to fit the, you know, the square peg in the round hole of a Rock Island Armory 45. But again, that comes down to, are you willing to put the time and effort into training yourself or are you just trying to buy improvement? Right. So would you say that there's really no definitive answer on to what, like, what 45 ACP gun would be a good solution for people that are wanting a 1911 just because of the caliber? Like, as a, like a duty gun? As, yeah. As not a 1911? Yeah. But specifically chambered in 45. Like, I know we have the Glock 21, but there, I, I don't see a whole lot of parts for that. Glock, well, most Glock parts are fairly interchangeable. Uh, okay. The Glock 21, the only major difference you're going to find will be the the ejector. The ejector rod needs to be uh, a different shape. And the uh, you'll have a slightly war- larger magwell grip, of course. But really, parts have fairly or Glocks have fairly high parts commonality between them. That's one of the great things about the Glock. So Glock 21 would be good. A CZ 97 would work very well, I think. Um, and I believe SIG makes, a, if you're a SIG person, SIG makes a couple of 45 offerings as well. And those are all three brands that have well-earned reputation for reliability and performance. All right. What about HK? We, I mean, we kind of have to talk about them a little bit, I suppose. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the HKM23, the the SOCOM build. That, it was good enough for the SEALs. And I mean, I guess the SEALs are more important than two world wars if you think about it. You know, one thing I like about uh, those tier one groups is that they are more resistant to buying into hype because everything they need has to be the best. And they use very objective measures of trying to determine what best really means. There are some Delta dudes who still rock 45s, but if you see them using them, they have their own armors. They have their own gunsmiths. They have guys who are experts in building, maintaining and repairing those 1911s. And they run very well for that reason because they have an on-call gunsmith who will do the work for free. But if you're looking for something that requires less specialization, that will run fairly well, that will especially work in 45, boy, the HKM-23 got selected for good reason. Right, and, the U- and if you're wanting to go a little bit cheaper, the, the USP-45 or the HK-45 isn't a bad option. Um I would say avoid the HK-45 Compact because that gun does not accept any modern lights on the market, including the TLR-7. That is, that is a little frustrating, and I, you know, I know there's a big a big debate raging right now, and a lot of egos are a little pricked online. Um, but I, I'm a big fan of lights on every gun I own, not as a not necessarily as a primary tool. I always carry a pocket light as well. But right. I, I'm a big fan of having more lights because I figure you it's always better to have more data and lights give you better data while you're in an awkward position. Right. And that's one of the reasons I was wanting I was wanting to have a 45 to carry just in case of an ammo shortage like we have right now. And yeah. I'd ended up getting the HK 45 compact and I was so disappointed to find out that. The X300 doesn't fit on it without modifying the light. The TLR1 doesn't fit on it without modifying the light. The TLR7 doesn't. The Olight PL Mini doesn't, which Olight lights suck, but I had one and it didn't fit, so it's worth mentioning. Um, so, it, you know, it's it, funny, actually. Uh, Casey and I have been 
kind of a little side project we've been doing. We've been trying to find anybody with a report of a PL2 Mini, the Valkyrie, failing. And of all the stuff that Olight makes, the Mini 2 seems to be the one that's not having the issues that the other ones do. It's been really interesting. We've been asking everybody in a lot of different forums. Well, let me look up real quick, because I think I have the PL2. Well, so w while you're looking, I mean, I do want to emphasize to people that this does not mean that Olight as a line <laughs> is necessarily all they're cracked up to be. There are some serious issues with the Olight design overall that I think are re really merit some, some wariness. It just happens that he and I got into the Valkyrie very early on, and we've been using them for a couple of years now, and we've been pretty happy with the results overall for a civilian defender with the specific needs that a civilian defender has with the uh, needs for reliability and accessibility. The new the new stuff that's coming out from like Streamlight, especially the TLR7 sub, I am really eager to get my hands on that because of the the form factor, the cost is a lot less than the new stream or the new Surefire. And Streamlight's earned some of my repeat business at this point. I've got a lot of their products and I've been very happy with them. Right. Now I did just look it up. I do not have the Mini 2, but I do have the standard PL Mini. I've actually had some issues with it. Yeah, yeah, it's the, the first iteration of the Mini's had some problems. Yep. Now I will say, um, that have you have you experienced the dimming with it after a certain amount of time? Yeah, and for a civilian for a civilian use option, that is yeah. not an issue for me. That makes sense because you aren't going to be running it as as long, I guess, as law enforcement might be. Right now, if you're a cop, you you don't know you could be out there doing a, an, an operation. You could have a bad situation kick up. You might be out there for half an hour running around looking for somebody with your primary light or your weapon light. Um, that that I can see that being a real problem for an officer, but for a civilian, I'm going to be in a very short gunfight if I'm in one at all. Once it's done, my gun gets put up, and I. You know, I go on to the post-shooting situation. I'm okay with that trade-off as a civilian defender using a subcompact firearm for my daily carry. Right, but, it does help that the, the Mini, too, is the only light that fits a lot of these guns. Now, that's one reason that I'm excited about the TLR7 sub, is that it's it's built with an, with an eye for a form factor for small and subcompact firearms. Uh, I've got my t I've got my PL2 on my M&P9 compact. Uh, Casey, my partner, he's got his he's got his mounted on a Sig P365. And those were those were the only options available when those guns were starting to kind of come around now. But since the industry is shifting towards these uh, small, uh, you know, the single stack or these uh, semi-single stack subcompact pistols. There's been a lot more light manufacturers and holster makers going, okay, this is what the people want. What can we make that'll fit this? Right, and this also brings up another point about the 1911, surprisingly. Most of them don't have a light rail on them. Yeah, uh, there are a few companies, custom companies, that will make them. Caspian is who I've been going with for years. Um, I've had a couple others recommended to me. But if you're going to get a 1911 that you intend to carry, uh, my feeling is that it needs to have a light on it. And again, that's that's my feeling. That's my perspective. Or even just the option to have it, because if it's your only handgun and you don't have a rifle or a shotgun for home defense, which an AR-15 is better than a shotgun, uh, we don't need to have an entire podcast about that. It's just a fact at this point. But if the handgun's the only thing you have and you aren't able to mount a light to it, you're really not doing yourself any favors by getting a non-railed 1911. Oh, absolutely. Um, and and again, coming, I don't want to get on a sidebar about the light thing. The good one for another podcast. Definitely. But in my mind, two is one, and one is none. I got beat into me when I was in Iraq, and I carried I carried a, an admin light, a hand light, and I had a, a tactical light on on my M4, and I used the hell out of that because I was a gunner. So I'd be illuminating bridges. I'd be looking at shadowy spots on the roads. And I tell you, I, I never regretted having extra illumination with me, but getting out there and discovering that one of your lights has gone down, that's a scary place to be. And we've got to remember, half of all time happens at night. 
Yep, and this is one of the reasons why I really enjoy stuff like the TLR7. It's because instead of using two CR123A batteries and, and, and only being able to feasibly carry one additional charge for something bigger, like like the TLR1, I'm only going to carry two spare batteries on me. That's one additional charge for my TLR1. If I'm carrying two batteries, I have two different two additional charges for something like my TLR7. So if you're if you're law enforcement, I think that's a really good policy to have spare batteries, spare ammo, keep an extra carry out rig in the truck of your vehicle because most law enforcement officers operate with their vehicles kind of a roving base. But for civilians, you know, we we never know when we're going to find ourselves a few hundred yards from our vehicles. We might be at the movies. We might be in a mall. We might be at a place where we can't readily fall back. you got to make do with what you've got on hand. And for a lot of us, it's really hard to dress around an entire tactical rig. And uh, I do know some guys who end up carrying more gear than cops do, and they don't do it on a good tactical belt. They do it in their pockets. And they don't usually keep the, the order that they carry. Like, if, if they put it all in their pockets one day, when they go to take their pants off, put on a different pair of pants the next day, it's going to be in a different order than it was the day before. This is why I only wear one one brand of pants anymore. I don't have to yeah. wear that's what I'm I'm starting to pivot over to only having the Vertex uh, Defiance jeans. I've really enjoyed those, and it really makes it easy to carry, like uh, an emergency IFAC in the magazine pocket, additional batteries in the in the magazine pocket, so on and so forth. We should definitely do a podcast about EDC stuff like that at some yes. point. Yes. Oh yeah. There. But but so circling back to the 1911s. Yep. Definitely. If I was going to do a round, if, if you were looking for a 1911, you're like, hey, I don't care what it costs. I want to get a good one. Yep. I would look at like an older STI. I got my Trojan for about 1400 bucks, Which isn't um, bad at all. <clears throat> no, I got a good deal on that. I was very happy with that. But Dan Wesson right now really makes a really solid uh, mid-level firearm that I think is right at that appropriate cost point that also runs reliably. But if you're going to get a 1911, you need to be aware of some of the ergonomic options. Uh, I like an extended safety or extended beaver tail rather, because what that does is that keeps that beaver tail, the back of the grip from cutting into your hand after a couple of hours on the range. I think that you should be looking at guns that are red dot ready. Red dots are the future. That is just something we need to embrace. And there are very few 19, like, like currently there are very few optic ready 1911s from the factory. I think the only one that I've actually seen from a mass production company is actually Kimber. So that was uh, <clears throat> when Kimber first got started, that was actually one of their big draws is that they were looking at these mods that gunsmiths were making where they were installing fever tail grips, extended safeties, where we're doing modifications of other parts. And Kimber made those standardized and they made them in-house so they fit correctly. Uh, back in the day, if you wanted an extended beaver tail grip, that was a few hundred dollars just of work because he, a gunsmith would take the old grip safety off, weld up a curve. And then cut that by hand to fit your gun and your hand so that you have protections you wouldn't get hammer bite. That's that's an expensive process. Now, we've gotten better at it. There's a lot more companies like EGW, like Wilson Combat, who offer parts off the shelf that, will, that can be more or less dropped into a gun. But for me, one of the things I hate seeing is when somebody buys a drop-in beaver tail grip. And I'm like, I'm sure they're very proud of it, but I can see the big gaps and the lack of fitment between the rear of the frame and the beaver tail. Now that can, can end up re- that can Go end ahead. up causing reliability issues, can it? Having that gap in the the grip safety? No, uh, it, it can it can hurt your hand, and it looks like ass. Which is potentially worse than having a safety issue. No one wants to damage <clears throat> their hand. And that's something that uh, I, I know some guys really struggle with. <clears throat> Pardon me is that they, they don't want to admit when a gun hurts. But that's like having bad boots. If your boots don't fit and you insist on walking with those boots on, eventually you're not going to be able to walk at all. And with, a 19, with any gun, if the gun hurts your hand for some reason, if there's a sharp edge, if the recoil is just weird, if it twists your wrist too much, what will happen is, is that if you, you can't ignore that pain. And no, it causes a repetitive body, stress injury. Right, exactly. Now, your body will start associating holding that gun with being in pain, and the flinch reflex becomes almost impossible to suppress. So if you're going to mod your 1911, 
I strongly suggest taking it to a gunsmith and saying, hey, will you fit this beaver tail to it? Hey, will you put in this better trigger? Hey, will you put in this extended safety? And let a gunsmith do it, not just for the perspective of safety, but also for making sure that the gun doesn't beat your hand up and make you a worse shot. Which makes sense. I don't think I'd want anything done to my gun. I, I don't think I'd want to do anything to my gun personally, such as fitting a, a, a different grip safety to it. And that's just because I don't trust myself. I'm kind of an idiot. Well, I mean, it, it's not a question of being an idiot. You're a smart guy. But, you know, there's... <laughs> Thanks. <clears throat> you are. I've enjoyed talking with you. You've got a lot of insight. You're a good researcher. But you don't have the tools that I do. Correct. You didn't sit through, you know, several hours of class learning how to fit this part, and you haven't built a bunch of them. If if you're trying to work on a car that you've never that you've never worked on, you've never been under the hood, you're going to end up causing yourself a lot of trouble. Now, if that's a learning experience for you, and you're okay with that, that's fine. More power to you. But you don't want to bust open the hood on your daily driver to fix a part that you can't even identify readily. Right, because next thing you know, you accidentally put wiper fluid inside of your engine instead of oil. And I we and we've seen people do it, you know. And if you're a car guy, you've made mistakes. You've put you've put on timing belts backward. You've forgotten to torque stuff down, and that doesn't mean you're stupid. It just means that you don't have a particular highly technical skill that someone else does. I don't work on my own HVAC. I had an HVAC guy out yesterday. I'm smart enough to know I don't know anything about working on my on my air conditioner. I'm okay with that. I am more than okay with hiring plumbers and electricians to come do the work that they are specialized in. I'm a blue-collar worker. I respect the expertise of other blue-collar workers. All right. So I think now the definitive answer to close this out. I've already gotten to it. We're just going to reiterate it. Are 1911s and 2011s, Eric, in your opinion, viable for self-defense purposes for the average gun owner? Not unless you're going to put down at least 1300 bucks on the table. And would you say that that $1,300 should be partnered up with an additional 1000 for uh, tools in order to be able to repair stuff? Or is that just to have one until it breaks? You know what? My tools cost me thousands of dollars. Bring it to me. I'm more than happy to do the work. That's why we have gunsmiths at all. Yes. If you want to work on your own gun, start with a Glock. Start with an AR-15. Start with something that's got a low threshold entry. If you want a 1911, part of the planning process there needs to be, I'm going to have to hire a gunsmith to fix this if it breaks. All right. So with that, everyone, you heard it from Eric. If you're wanting to get a 1911 or 2011 for self-defense purposes, the threshold is $1,300. Get something like a Dan Wesson. And if you have any issues, hit up Eric at Nelson Gunsmithing to fix your 1911 for you. Or hit up your local gunsmith that has a good reputation of working with 1911s and is very knowledgeable with the platform itself. Very if well. Any of, yeah. Thank you. Now, if any of you have any questions about this, you can find Eric and I on the Just Pews website. All you have to do is go to the About and find either of us, and you can find us on social media. If you have any topics that you'd like us to cover in future podcasts, go ahead and shoot us an email, shoot us a message, tell us what you want to hear about. I want to thank you for tuning in for the first ever Just Pews podcast. I know we probably ruffled some feathers, but this is a conversation that needed to be had because it's not one that's it's never really hit on properly and that's something that needed to be done and i'm happy that eric you were here to help me with hitting on that and answering all the questions that i don't have the knowledge to answer oh i appreciate you having me mike and if i can close out with one last thought from my side of things of course it's to to tell people there are no sacred cows the only thing that the only thing that matters is objective information If you've got a gun that you can put on a shot timer that you put hundreds or thousands of rounds through and it is reliable and accurate, fantastic. I'm not going to tell you to take a good and working gun and throw it out. My advice here is for people who are just breaking into the game who are trying to figure out what their cost point versus performance is. And I want to emphasize above all else that if you prove me wrong with the data you produce, 
I'm not going to complain. I think that's awesome, and I think every gun yep. buyer should be taking a data-driven approach to deciding what works for them. Just don't, just don't hold on to sacred cows for the sake of holding on to them. And if you're brand new to handguns and you're looking for more information, something that I've been working on building with the help of Eric, with the help of 2A Lifestyles Nick, is a handgun buyer's guide where you can find all the information that you're looking for. It's comprehensive. If you don't know what SAO means, if you don't know what DASA is, if you don't know what DAO is, or you don't know what the difference is between all the different frame types for handguns, there is a comprehensive handgun guide under the resource directory on the website. Making informed really decisions. I'm looking forward to seeing that going live. I'm actually, I owe you an article, I think, on some of the basic ammo selections that are going to contribute towards helping new people cut through the white noise. So, yeah, definitely check that website out. Keep an eye on justpews.com because that's where you're going to see it published. And hand if you're if you're a longtime gun owner, if this is something that this is none of this is news for you, keep a bookmark because you're going to have a friend come to you in the next couple weeks at some point and say, hey, where do I start? And you'll have a place to send them. Yep, and at Just Pews and at Nelson Gunsmithing, the big thing that we want to push you to do is just to make informed decisions. We don't care if you agree with our decisions or not, as long as it's an informed opinion that's backed with some sort of evidence absolutely 